It was a crazy idea. CBS journalist Connor Knighton wanted to see every one of America's national parks in one year. To enjoy the most daylight possible, he greeted the first dawn of the year at Acadia in Maine and watched the New Year's Eve sunset at Point Reyes in California. It was the most scenic and the most transformative year of my life, and, and it will affect my thinking going forward. Connor explains how he had an epic National Parks year in just a bit. In Greece, there are special places where you can get in touch with its history and mythology. And in Olympia, you will see the uh, statue of Hermes of Praxiteles, which is a wonder of sculpting, and it will remind you a lot of the Renaissance. Even Dionysus still has something to say. He was the one that was teaching humans that we can be reborn out of our own mistakes. Explore the sites of Greek mythology, America's national parks, and your fondest travel memories in the hour ahead. It's Travel with Rick Steves. Hey, I'm Rick Steves. You can experience my favorite European people, places, and stories in my newest book, For the Love of Europe. Order your copy today at ricksteves.com. How are you planning to bring a little joy into your new year? Coming up, journalist Connor Knighton tells us how he crisscrossed America with a goal to not only see each of the country's national parks, but to get to know what makes each one significant. And later in the hour, we'll check in with more of our listeners about the travel memories that keep their spirits up while we wait for the chance to explore the world again. Let's start today's Travel with Rick Steves with a look at what the ancient past wants to tell us today. For example, all around you in Greece, there's scenery and marble ruins that played a role in Greek mythology. These places explained the world to the people who lived there thousands of years ago. Stand there in person today and the ancient world can come alive right in front of you. To explain, we're joined now by Greek tour guides Ioana Papakosta and Filippos Kanakaras. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Ioana, you're a tour guide based in Patra, and that is uh, is on the north of the Peloponnesian Peninsula and just next to Olympia. Lots of Greek mythology in that area. And Filippos, you're in Athens, and you're in the shadow of the Acropolis. Yeah, exactly. So when you're taking your groups around, give me an example of how it helps to understand the Greek mythology in order to appreciate the sites that you're looking at. Philippos. Well, I'll give you an example with the site of Delphi, which was the uh, base of the Oracle of Apollo. Mm-hmm. A stunning, a magical site. Uh, it's on the slope of the hill of Parnassos. And this is if you drive there from Athens, you drive about two or three hours? It's around three and a half hours. In the mountains? It's on the mountains, and when you arrive, you see this dramatic landscape. Mm-hmm. And uh, while you start walking into the site, you're wondering how the ancient people came up with this idea. And when you hear the myth that's connected with Delphi, you will understand. They say that God Zeus, when he created the world, he had a bit of time in his hands. So, you know, when they're bored, they come up with ideas. So Zeus released two eagles, one towards the east and the other one towards the west. They flew around the world and they both met above the site of Delphi. When Zeus saw where they met, he said, okay, this is the center of the earth. So he took this giant stone and threw it there. And from that point, they say that the navel of the world was created. And that was the site of Delphi. Now, there was an oracle there. Yes. So how did that work? How did the gods speak to the people at Delphi? The story says that the people uh, at that time, which is around 800 years before the birth of Christ, they started seeing their goats going up on the cliffs and then hoping, very happy, very enthusiastic. So the goats started hopping after visiting Delphi. Yep. And they followed them and they realized that they were inhaling these vapes. 
So vapor is coming out of the world, yes. out of the earth, to a, to like a crack in the ground. There's a crack in the ground, and the archaeologists have managed to discover, with geologists, they managed to discover rocks with signs of specific uh, chemical contents of fumes that were coming okay. out. So they realized that there was something magical happening. Back then, science was not as developed as it is now, so they mm-hmm. believed that this was a divine sign. So everybody is believing the gods are speaking to the people through a crack in the earth in Delphi, up in the mountains, northwest of Athens. And then how did the people who were in power capitalize on that, to take advantage of that? Delphi became the most important place in the ancient known world. Everybody, all the kingdoms, they would go there in order to find out if they should go to war, if they should do big public works, whatever they had to decide, and they felt it was a very important decision, they would go there and ask the oracle for advice. So it's like going into this mysterious temple, and you've got priestesses and robes and crazy things, and they really think this is the, the Oz on earth. There would be these young girls that were inside special rooms underneath the temple of Apollo, and they would inhale these vapes, yeah. and they would start talking in a way that no one would understand. So they had priests that would decipher oh, what they so were the saying. the priest got to decipher it as he wanted to. Today, as a tourist, what do we see in Delphi, Philippos? We see the ruins of uh, the Temple of Apollo. We see the treasury of the Athenians, which is a building that they erected in order to commemorate the Because victory. they took a lot of money, I suppose, when people yeah, came there. Yeah, it was so also the offerings the to, to God of Apollo. Course, yeah. So every city-state would have its own treasury, the Athenian right treasury. there. So you walk up to the, the, the temples and the theater and the race course and so on, and, and you pass all these temples that were treasuries collecting all that money. Mm-hmm. It's a fascinating place to check out, one of the best sites from ancient Greece. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Ioana Papakosta and Philippos Kanakaris. We're talking about Greek mythology from the traveler's point of view. Ioana, if you're taking groups around, where is one site that you like to take groups where you really want to understand the Greek mythology behind it? Oh, there are so many. It's all over the country. Wherever you walk, wherever you see mountains, plants, everything has a myth behind it. But there is a part of the Peloponnese Peninsula which is really unknown to the people coming to the country. The heart of the Peloponnese, the area called Arcadia. Very rich mythology over there. And one of my favorite stories is the story of where the name came from. So there was Zeus, who was a playboy. He was always in love with many women. Hera was his goddess wife. Hera, okay. Hera. Once he fell in love with a beautiful girl, her name was Callisto, and uh, she got pregnant, and Hera found out, and she really got mad. So Zeus changed the woman, Callisto, to a a bear, an animal. Uh And she was wandering around the mountains, the beautiful forests of Arcadia, she, before that, I should add, she had a baby, and the baby grew up. His name was Arkas. He became a very good hunter growing into the forest. And one day, there was a bear right across from where he was. So he took out his bow and arrow. He was ready to hit the bear. But Zeus saw what was going to happen was horrible. So he immediately changed the boy to a little bear as well. Hera saw what happened that Zeus was there to protect them, and she changed them to constellations, Ursus, Major, and Minor. So you have that origin of what they see up in the sky. Exactly. That's the story. They they had to, people needed to make sense of everything around them. So the mythology helps you explain why is this here and why is that there. Exactly. So I'm a child. You're my mother 4,000 years ago, well, 2,300 years ago, and I'm skeptical. 
explain to me why I should believe this stuff. Oh, because you need to understand that in the prehistoric times, all the natural phenomena were deities for the people. Deities. deities. All the phenomena. So if there's the thunder, if there's a earthquakes. storm. And then, so you have Zeus, who is the one who dominates the world. Right. Every aspect of life had its own representative so deity. So if you want to have a baby... It's related to some kind of a god. Exactly. And there was goddess Artemis, who was the goddess of wildlife and hunting, but she was the one protecting the women during labor. And then you have nature. Life comes from the earth, right? Uh There is Demeter, the sister of Zeus. Uh She was the goddess who taught the humans how to cultivate the earth. But then there's Apollo, who is one of the young gods, who was the god of order and logic and sensitivity. But is that all we are? We want to have fun. We want to enjoy life. We make mistakes. So who's there? So there's order, there's logic, there's sensitivity, but there's also... Dionysus. So drunken craziness. Well, he's a bit misunderstood. He was the son of Zeus and another mortal girl. She got pregnant. Her name was Semele again. And Hera found out, and uh, she got so mad. She challenged Zeus to appear in front of this girl in all of his glory. And Zeus did, and he appeared, shining like the sun, but his light was so strong. The girl immediately, she became ashes. She turned to ashes. So Zeus took the baby out of her womb. He put it in his thigh, and when the time was right for the baby to be born, Zeus scratched his thigh and the baby popped out. Logically. Right? (laughs) I wish it was that simple. In any case, when the baby grew up, he was taken by Hermes to a mountain, and he, because he was born twice, he was the one that was teaching humans that we can be reborn out of our own mistakes. Our guides to the sites of Greek mythology on Travel with Rick Steves are Ioana Papakosta. She specializes in tours of Olympia from her home base in Patras. And when he's not leading tour groups around Greece, Philippos Kanakaris also directs a contemporary theater troupe in Athens. Philippos, when I'm traveling in Greece... I go to the sites, and it's hot, it's crowded, there's a lot of rubble. I want to be inspired. Give me a tip on on getting meaning from my sightseeing as I walk through these museums and as I walk through these ancient sites. What's one site in particular which has a great museum next to it, and how would I enjoy it? I can very quickly think of two sites, the site of Delphi and the site of Olympia. They they are amazing, both of them, Mm because you can see a lot of the original findings. Because you can see the actual oracle stone at Delphi, can't yes. you? But you won't see that out in the fields. It's carefully put away in the museum. And in Olympia, you will see the uh, statue of Hermes of Praxiteles, which is a wonder of sculpting, and it will remind you a lot of the Renaissance. So wander around the fields and see the rubble, but then go into the museum. It's always explained in English, and you'll see the treasures, the, the real uh, artistic treasures of, of those amazing places you want to, when you're in Athens, you've got to go to the Acropolis, the city on the hill, Acropolis, right? Give us a tip on how to appreciate that and also talk about the mythology that is behind the Acropolis. Well, uh, the patron goddess of the city was goddess Athena. This is where the name comes from. Mm-hmm. So, And when, she was the goddess of a- Athena, but what did she symbolize, Athena? Oh, she was the goddess of wisdom. She popped out of Zeus's head. Oh, okay, there you go. So she was the goddess of wisdom. There's a logical explanation for those people back then behind it. So um, she was the, the goddess protecting the city. And in the years of democracy, when everybody was equal, the best spot of the city, who would it be dedicated to? The goddess. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, 
Athens was a political power, a military power, a shipping power. A league was created and the Athenians were taking taxes from all the fellow so this cities. This was the Athenian League. Exactly. And this is a bunch of small states that Athens kind of uh, was the leader of. Exactly. So the Athenians had to make a statement. Aha. Uh-huh. There's this beautiful rock, one way up to the top, one axis. So we make this fantastic building, Parthenon, the temple of the virgin goddess. Athena? Athena. So Athena, the Parthenon was built for Athena. Exactly. There was must have been a huge statue of Athena in it. There was a 36-feet statue of Athena inside made of ivory and gold, but at the same time, this building was the treasury of the democracy of Athens. So the public gold and the public bronze was kept safely up there, where people wouldn't have access, at the same time, very well protected. So there's politics, there's economics, there's religion. It's all mixed up together. Ioana, Philippos. Thank you so much for sharing with us a better appreciation of Greek sightseeing through the mythology. Thank you very much. Thank If you're hungry for a year of adventure, hear how Connor Knighton traversed the entire United States to see every national park in 365 days. That's more than one a week. He's next on Travel with Rick Steves. And later in the hour, let's hear about your favorite travel memories at 877-333-7425. Have you ever made travel plans for yourself that you discovered might have been a tad ambitious? Connor Knighton made it his goal to visit each of America's national parks within a year, from Acadia to Zion and even in American Samoa and the Virgin Islands. He filmed his adventures for a series on CBS Sunday Morning and describes how he made it all happen in his book, Leave Only Footprints. Connor's back with us from his home studio to tell us his process for seeing 59 U.S. national parks in one year. Connor, welcome back. Thank you for having me. So what an epic year. And you bookended it very nice with a sunrise and a sunset. Can you sort of set the scene for us? How did you kick it off? How did you finish it? And and just very briefly, how did you fill the year? Yeah, so I began at Acadia National Park in Maine on New Year's Day at the top of Cadillac Mountain. Um, that is the place in the contiguous U.S. where the sun first touches U.S. soil And so I knew it was going to be a busy year. I told myself that a head start couldn't hurt, even if it's just a couple seconds head start. But that's a park that it gets, I think, 80% of its visitation in four months of the year, and those would be the warm months. So it is it is not a popular park in January. Cadillac Mountain is a mountain you can drive up in the summer, but in the winter, that road shuts down. Most of the town shuts down, Bar Harbor, Maine. That road becomes a, a slippery, solitary hike. And so I'm headed out on New Year's Day, The New Year's Eve revelers are still maybe coming home at that point. It's 3, 3.30 in the morning. And I begin this hike by myself. CBS had not said yes to the idea at that point yet. I certainly didn't think it would be a book. I just knew that the beginning needed to be special, whatever this was going to shape up to be. And so I, I didn't have a camera crew. I had a little camera with myself, made it to the top of that mountain, and then was surprised to find other people, a few other crazy folks like me who decided to begin their year that way, mostly locals. I don't think anybody had traveled for this, but it was a nice little camaraderie. 40 of us or so at, at that moment when the sun crests over the water, all yelling Happy New Year to each other. Um, and then from that moment, I was off. Very poorly planned, very last minute kind of a trip as I'm 
negotiating all those travel arrangements on the fly. But then as it got closer to the end of the year, I knew that it would be really cool if I could end where the sun sets last. And so I looked that up and the westernmost point in the contiguous U.S., is in Olympic National Park. And so I thought, well, perfect. That's what what poetry that I'm beginning and ending in a national park. And I'm all ready to book my ticket. And then I remember something that I'd read about in Maine, which is that the truth of Cadillac Mountain being where the sun first rises in the U.S. is only true for part of the year. Because of the tilt of the earth, Mars Hill, Maine, sees the first sunrise for, for you know half the year, and then half the year it's Cadillac Mountain. And I realized, oh, crap, that's probably true at the westernmost point. And how did I not even think of that? So I emailed the Navy, uh, the Naval Observatory. I'm like, hey, here's what I'm trying to do. Any chance I'm right? And they're like, unfortunately, you're not right. Oh, no. I know. And so I was like, oh, is it going to be some guy's backyard? Like, where is it? And it turns out it was at Point Race National Seashore in California, uh, maybe an hour and a half from San Francisco, still park service land, not technically a national Mm -hmm. park. It's a national seashore. But I was lucky that it just wasn't like a Chuck E. Cheese somewhere in Oregon. (laughs) Well, yeah, because I was going to say that's a beautiful and dramatic point to wrap it all up. It it ended up being perfect. So that's where I was on New Year's Eve watching the sun set last. And so I had the longest year you could possibly have in the contiguous U.S. in terms of daylight. And I loved every minute of it. And you had 365 days to visit 59 parks at the time. I guess there's a few more parks now. But back then there was 59 parks. You had to chart it out because you wouldn't want to go, oops, I missed two. So you had it all carefully checked off and figured out. Did that pretty much keep you going all the time? What's that? That's a a park every five or six days. Yeah. Well, I appreciate that you think I had it carefully plotted out. It wasn't, it wasn't so (laughs) careful. You're right that I couldn't miss any of them, but it was this weird puzzle of weather and geography and then story selection because, you know, what was paying for some of this was, was my job at at CBS. I had to find certain stories. So I went to Mount Rainier National Park, but the story I was doing there involved an interview with the secretary of the interior. She was there for one day. And so I had to make sure I was there on that day. Otherwise, I would have never gone to that park on that day. I did a story of the sled dog puppies at Denali National Park in Alaska. And I'm trying to get there in time for their birth, you know, or right right after they were born when they're sort of at peak cuteness. But that involved me making phone calls from Great Basin National Park in Nevada months earlier. This creepy guy calling the parks trying to figure out if their dogs had made it yet so mm-hmm. I could I could plot my trip there. But that's once I sort of had that okay, well, I'll structure the rest of my Alaska trip around that. But yeah, it was an interesting puzzle. Some parks aren't accessible for parts of the year. So you have to factor that in. Isle Royal in Michigan shuts down after October. And so that's that's a park I knew I had to get to before then or else I wasn't going to get there at all. So if I was going to Zion or Bryce or Yosemite, I would get a guidebook to give me the the places to eat and sleep and all that. Uh, and you didn't do that in your book. You You cover all the parks. You cover the entire year in your book, Leave Only Footprints, but you organized it by themes. And I found that to be really interesting. And I'd love to just kind of say one of the themes and let you share how you wove that together from your experience. Water, for instance, is an interesting theme that would really intersect with the grandeur of the parks. Yeah. So Hot Springs National Park in Arkansas was actually protected before Yellowstone. It wasn't deemed a national park back then. They had a different designation for it, but that was for the the healing waters of hot springs, the the valley of the vapors. People used to go there medicinally. A doctor would write you a prescription in New York City and say, hey, if you want to treat that syphilis, go down to Arkansas and take a bath for two weeks. Ultimately, science has figured out that that was uh, probably, it didn't hurt, but it wasn't really helping. Um, but there's these beautiful bathhouses there, all from the golden age of bathing. And so in the book, I link that park and the healing power of that water or the supposed healing power 
um, with Biscayne National Park in Florida, a park that is 95% water, 5% land. Both of those parks, I don't think are what people think of when they think of national parks. And very early in the year, I had to stop thinking of parks in that Yosemite Yellowstone kind of way. Because yeah. Hot Springs is in the middle of the city. Biscayne is is mostly the ocean. But whether I was diving at Biscayne or taking a naked 7 a.m. bath in Arkansas, I, I was able to sort of link the experience of that water, of the of the healing properties of that, that I experienced in that chapter. And that's an important point for all of us. I think if I'm to think of a national park, I, like most people, I think of five or six iconic parks. But there's, of course, many more kinds of focuses in the parks and so on. How about animals? Animals can be a big part of the experience. My favorite memory of that was at Katmai National Park in Alaska. If you've ever seen any footage of a bear eating salmon from a waterfall, chances are that was shot at Katmai. Uh, There's a place in that park called Brooks Falls that has what they call a predictable eruption, which means every year the salmon come back to the same place. They jump up that waterfall. The bears have figured that out. So it's sort of a, one of those conveyor sushi uh, restaurants <laughs> for bears where they just, yeah. they just hang out, they munch down on them. And it's possible from a safe distance to watch that. And the bears could care less that there's people there. They've got you know a, a feast of salmon to, to feed yeah. us up for the winter. But the bears don't confine themselves to that area. And so that's a park where they tell you to make noise, which is the opposite of what you think of at a park. But it's the only one that I went to where there was a mandatory orientation. They put you through bear school and the uh-huh. lessons are simple, but important. And one of those lessons is make noise when you hike. And there was a moment that I describe in the book where I, I forgot that lesson. And when you're by yourself, that can be a very scary experience to stumble upon a bear. I'm sure it was scary for them too, but I live to tell the tale. Um, so for your own safety, make noise to let the bears know you're coming so exactly, you don't accidentally yeah. blindside them. You don't want to surprise a bear. The worst thing you could do would be to surprise them. If they right. know you're coming, they would rather you know, go their rather own way. Scram. Yeah. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Connor Knighton. And Connor spent a year visiting each of America's national parks in order to create a series of video travel reports for CBS Sunday Morning. He takes us behind the scenery as he writes about what each of these parks showed him in his book, Leave Only Footprints. We have a link to Connor's work with this week's show. It's at ricksteves.com slash radio. I think the impact of a park really, to a great extent, is, is not just how magnificent the park is, but what you take with it. There's a psychological, there's an emotional component. Did a park ever drive you to tears because of something that was going on inside of you? Petrified Forest um, National Park in Arizona. Um, It's a beautiful park protected for its stockpiles of petrified wood. The park's had a history of people taking that wood. What surprised me and what surprised the park is that sometimes people send that wood back. And it's normally accompanied with a a long letter, an apology note of saying, hey, listen, I took this when I was seven. You know, I've, I've since realized it was a bad thing to do. Let me take it back. And so the park accepts all of that. But unfortunately, they can't put it back. At that point, it's lost its scientific value. No one really knows where it came from, and it would screw up a scientist's results. So they have this pile of wood way down a dirt road. It's not part of the park experience that they call the conscience pile. Hmm. And it's massive. It's just sort of this weird monument to people trying to do the right thing, but a little too late. And, And as someone who's had that experience in his own life, that is something that moved me to tears. I mean, certainly I had that experience of a beautiful vista or seeing a bald eagle soaring, but this sad little pile of shiny rocks got to me Ah. and it just just felt so human, that experience. A a conscience pile. That leads me to ask about the impact of global climate change. If you visited the parks, I would think you'd be a little more tuned in to the fragility of nature. 
So John Jarvis, the former director of the National Park Service, has said that climate change is fundamentally the greatest threat facing the integrity of the national parks. And there is not a park that is immune from its effects, but a park where it's particularly clear is uh, Glacier National Park in Montana. The glacier that is in the name and on the sign, it will have no more glaciers within 15 years or so from now. I mean, for mm -hmm. sure within my lifetime, there will be no glaciers left at that park. And so there I took a hike with a re-photographer, so a man who works for the U.S. Geological Survey, who is going to take pictures from the same exact location that a picture had been taken in, say, the 1930s to document what had been lost. I mean, he certainly has the charts and the graphs and the data to prove that, but mm -hmm. there's something about seeing that information visually that was really powerful, and, and he knows that's why it is. And so he goes back and takes a picture, and there you see that, I mean, they've got photos of a guy standing on a block of ice at 70 feet tall, that guy would be floating 70 feet in the air today. I mean, all that ice is gone. And so there, and then at Kenai Fjords in Alaska, another ice-focused park where they've got signs that show you where the ice used to be. It, it, you mm. realize how much the visual impact uh, makes a difference there. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Connor Knighton. He's our guest, and he's written about his year visiting each of the national parks and the lessons that each one has to offer. That's in his book, Leave Only Footprints. Connor's had a series of these travel reports based on his experiences in the parks that's aired on CBS Sunday Morning. His website is connorknighton.com. You know, Connor, when I'm walking on a ridge high in the Alps, I always feel like that's the greatest cathedral. There's just something about being on top of a mountain when you enjoy getting close to God. Are there any times in these national parks where you just felt like saying, thank God? Yeah, many. And I think, you know, someone responsible for a lot of the language that we use to talk about parks is John Muir, who, you know, wrote about those grand cathedrals of nature and, and likened Yosemite a lot to, you know, God's greatest temple. I certainly felt that there. I felt that at Lake Clark National Park in Alaska, a very remote one. And there I, I stumbled upon a church camp where people fly wounded veterans to this lodge on the edge of the park, all expenses paid. They bring their spouses there as well. It's a chance for them to deal with some of the PTSD they might be experiencing, to reconnect with their spouses. This was not, I wrote about it in the book. I would have loved to have done a TV story on it. I just didn't realize it was there until I was there. So, and people are getting baptized in that lake. I continue to think of God through the Methodist Protestant lens that I grew up in, but just the idea of nature or spirituality, however you choose to define that or, or God uh, or that feeling of something greater than yourself. I think it's, it's hard not to feel that in a park. Uh, there's a writer, I believe, named J.B. Priestley, who described the Grand Canyon. Like, you know the Colorado River made it, but you can't help but think that God gave the Colorado its instructions. <laughs> and so that's how I felt. I mean, there's a lot of science to be learned oh, in the park, yeah. and that was fascinating. I mean, I believe that it's, you know, millions and millions of years old. I don't think that it was all made 5,000 years ago, but right. you still feel that there's something, you know, oh, yeah. in play that well, is hard to describe. I think it's kind of a freedom to let yourself go in that regard. Yeah. Uh, and John Muir did too. I, I love the way you wrote about John Muir and how he called the hills and the groves were like, God's first temples. And I love this. What He said something about the more they cut down and, and hewn the land and the trees in order to build churches, the dimmer the presence of the Lord seems. In other words, God was more present in the natural habitat than cutting down all those trees and building a church. Yeah. And there is a church in Yosemite Valley. I believe it's the oldest church there. But Galen Clark, who was, I think, 
it was early in the creation of that park. I forget his exact title, but like it had an interesting essay about it where he's like, why? Like, what's the point? Why on earth would you stand in this plywood or the wooden structure right. and just look out and see it right around there? If you're inclined um, to raise your hands to glorify God, do it on top of a mountain, not in yeah. a little, little plywood building. Absolutely. Um, John Muir even capitalized nature, like the word God is capitalized. I mean, that was, yeah. uh, it must have inspired him. And something else that inspires travelers, I would think when they visit the parks is just the silence. It's more, sometimes we're almost afraid of silence and you can find powerful silence in the parks. Yeah. So at Great Sand Dunes National Park in Colorado, it has been measured to be the quietest place in the country. There are a couple other places that rival it sometimes. So like Yellowstone in the winter is particularly quiet. Haleakala Crater sometimes uh, in Hawaii is quiet. So debatably the quietest, but let's say top five. It is so silent. Part of that is how remote it is. Part of it is the sand. Um, we should be recording this interview in the sand dunes because that would be quieter <laughs> than any recording studio that exists. I mean, it is just the sand sucks the sound in and deadens it. And it can be spooky. I mean, you're hearing conversations from hundreds of feet away. You're hearing your heartbeat. You're hearing, you know, the hairs in your ear jiggle around, especially if you're coming from a noisy place. It could be a very unsettling bit of quiet until you ease into that and really uh, appreciate that for what it is. Because a lot of times we don't know what quiet is. We put up with uh, something less than quiet. And in that sense, real quiet can actually be a kind of loud quiet. It's a different experience. And it makes other sounds seem much louder. So with that, yes. that's a park where you can hear a car coming from far farther away than you would in a suburban huh. street. Same thing with an airplane. And so I was there with an audiologist with the, the Park Service Natural Sounds and Night Skies Division, hmm. um, which is an organization based in, I think, Fort Collins, who studies this. And they study the impact that sound has on animals. I mean, as you can imagine, if you're like a bird calling or, or, or an elk bugling and part of your mating ritual involves the other, your, your counterpart hearing that call, the louder it is, the harder that's going to be. Road noise can uh, affect predator-prey relationships mm -hmm. where they're too scared to go out and get their food. And so um, it's an issue where they're, they're trying to minimize the sound that we create in a park, human-caused sound anyway. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been talking with Connor Knight, who invested a year of his life, and I would imagine it was the, the best year you could ever have as far as wondering how to use your time smartly and, and with impact in order to write this book, Leave Only Footprints, My Acadia to Zion Journey Through Every National Park. And Connor, you took your own emotions and your own needs and your own human frailty with you on this adventure, and you share it so intimately in the book. And I'd like to just wrap things up with just a quick mention about how you say you're looking for love in your life. And the kind of love you dream of is a national park kind of love. What does that mean? Yeah, my cameraman who I'd been traveling with made fun of me for that analogy. He's like, man, that he's like, you've gone too far park. You've gone too nerdy in this world. But to me, that's how I like things. There are state parks and there are perfectly great state parks, perfectly great uh, national monuments. But somehow these national parks feel unique and special. And there's not just one. I mean, since this journey started with a, a failed engagement, you know, I, I had to remind myself that there are other fish in the sea. I had to think that. But I, I still, what I want in my own life is that national park kind of love, something that feels a little different and a little special than the rest. And maybe there's not one, but there's, there's you know, a, a few. And, and finding one of those that's the right match for me is, uh, this is still something that I'm on the hunt for, but it is something that I'm, I'm uh, confident that will come my way when I'm ready for it. Well, best wishes to that. And with your inspiration from your book, Leave Only Footprints, we can find that national park kind of love in nature. 
thanks, Connor, for sharing and um, happy travels. Thank you. You can listen to Connor's earlier interview with us at ricksteves.com slash radio. Tell us about your fondest travel memories at 877-333-RICK or email at radio at ricksteves.com. After hearing about Connor Knighton's epic year of the national parks, what are some of your own travel memories that you look back on fondly? Chances are we're all itching to get out there and see the world again soon. But for now, let's check in with Travel with Rick Steves listeners around the country at 877-333-7425 to hear your travel tales. Steve's calling in from Minneapolis. Steve, thanks for your call. Hi, Rick. How are you? I'm doing great. What's on your mind when it comes to dreaming about going to Europe? Well, actually, we were uh, discussing a trip that we took to the 75th anniversary of the Normandy invasion there in France. Wow. My wife and... Uh, her sister and her sister's husband, who are both uh, former military, went with us. And it was probably the most memorable trip uh, I could ever imagine. Uh, I'm a World War II history buff, and I've been to a lot of war sites uh, throughout Europe, uh, Warsaw, Auschwitz, uh, mm-hmm. Krakow, where Schindler's factory mm-hmm. is located. Uh, but this was just an incredible experience to be there on the 75th anniversary in Normandy, primarily because of the number of vets who were there. Wow. There were well over 100. And we had the great privilege to, of being able to talk with many of them. So it was just uh, an incredible experience. And Steve, this is uh, particularly special because it's the last big anniversary where you'll have uh, a lot of people there able to tell the story from a first-hand experience point of view 75 years ago. Exactly right. Uh, I had been to Normandy once before, eight years ago or so, but not on the anniversary. And I vowed if I ever went back, it would have to be for one of the big anniversaries. And as you say, this is really the last big anniversary. Those people you were talking to were 95 years old. Yes, exactly. And there were many of them on the stage at the ceremony at the American Cemetery on June 6th uh, with President Trump, President Macron, uh, and to see them interacting, first of all, with these dignitaries, but more importantly, with each other, uh, was just absolutely amazing. This truly was a band of brothers, uh, wh- whether they were in the uh, the Army, the Marines, the Air Force, the Navy, mm-hmm. uh, and, and especially now because there's so few of them left. Mm-hmm. Steve, it's occurred to me that there's a big transition going on in this decade where we will no longer have the blessing of uh, firsthand accounts of the Holocaust and the fight against Nazis in this very, very important uh, time historically because these uh, people who were part of it are, or the last of them are passing away. And it makes it more important than ever that we have museums like the Schindler's factory in Krakow and Auschwitz and concentration camps and and some of the amazing cemeteries in Normandy that can help us keep those memories alive, even though we can't talk to people who were actually there on those uh, tumultuous beaches. Absolutely. And and one of the highlights for me uh, on, the, on June 6th at the ceremony at the American Cemetery, uh, I was able to walk around, and there were various vets being interviewed by media, of course. Mm-hmm. 
And uh, I, I just stood there with my cell phone uh, video mm. and, and taped a vet who was recalling his his life, his story of that day, 75 years earlier, mm-hmm. he was a paratrooper. He was describing where he had landed, what he had done for the first 48 hours. And as I'm listening, uh, recording him, I'm thinking, you know, this may be the last time this gentleman tells his story. Mm-hmm. And I have it documented, and I want to be able to pass yeah. that on to my children and their children. Well, anytime any American has the opportunity to go to France, you know, to Paris, it's just a couple hours to the west, you can go to Normandy. There's a whole school of guides that really, they just specialize in the Normandy invasion and D-Day, and they are just wonderful. And they, it's their mission to help us appreciate the valor and the importance of those battles. To go there and experience that firsthand is, to me, it's almost a responsibility if you're enjoying the freedom that we enjoy today. Absolutely, and, and also the uh, the monuments and the uh, the things that are there to commemorate what the American and British and Canadians did. Uh, of course, most of those, I'm sure you're, you're aware, are paid for and kept up by the French civilians. Yep. You know, oh we, yeah, we they travel to France and we hear all the criticism of how the the French don't like the Americans. Well, you go to France, I mean, go to Normandy, and it's a different story. Oh, yeah, they got, absolutely no, no, no. You got. You know, the French don't like ketchup, and they don't like the way Americans butcher their language, and they don't like, you know, us having big gulp culture. But they are very thankful for the American um, power and valor and commitment to freedom and, and generosity in World War II, and not just in Normandy. Absolutely. Good. Steve, hey, thanks so much. And I just love the thoughts of uh, you and your wife enjoying that 75th anniversary. I'm so glad, considering your passion for that history, that you got to be there on the 75th anniversary and talk to those courageous veterans uh, while they're still able to tell their story. It was an, an incredible experience that I will cherish the rest of my life. All right. Well, more good travels to you, Steve. Thanks for your call. Thank you, Rick. We're stoking our travel endorphins by reliving some of our listeners' best travel memories right now on Travel with Rick Steves. We're at 877-333-7425, and our email address is radio at ricksteves.com. Jay's calling in from Cherry Hill in New Jersey. Hey, Jay. How's it going, Rick? It's going good, considering everything. What travel memories are you thinking back on right now as we're locked down for a little while? I was recalling back in 2015 when Ireland put a a referendum on their ballot to legalize gay marriage, and it passed. It was history, and I was there with a couple of friends, and we spent a week there. We rented a flat. We worked our butts off, uh, knocking on doors and passing out leaflets and basically campaigning. It was a lot of work, and it was a lot of walking, and um, I didn't get to do a whole lot of the tourist stuff. And I definitely look forward to going back to Ireland to, you know, to do the tour of the Guinness factory and to do some of the more typically tourist stuff. Yeah, but let me get this straight. So, Jay, you and your friend, are you guys gay? Uh, We are. We were all gay. And so you're going there with your partner and you're knocking on doors of uh, traditional Catholic Irish people who are a little bit stressed out about this and you're humanizing the whole thing. Or what was that like? They actually thought it was really interesting that an American would come all of this way to to basically to fight for equality in their their little country. And uh, they were really, honestly, I thought originally for a long time that, that Ireland voting for gay marriage was a really kind of a real big win for progressivism. And there's really no other way to cut it. But, you know, the more I think about it, it was kind of a, 
almost like a spasm of fury against the church, really. It was almost like a defiance gesture. It was almost akin to, like, Brexit in a weird way. Oh, my when I goodness. I think about yeah. how they were so excited to send this message to the world and to the Catholic Church that this was a new Ireland, and this was going to be an Ireland where, okay, people could marry the people they love, yeah, whoever they want. But did you feel that you were in uh, rural Ireland, small-town Ireland, or was it Dublin? We were in Dublin pretty much the whole time. We did a little bit of the suburbs in Dublin, but uh, uh-huh. we basically stayed in the city. And did you feel like you were actually helping your cause? I mean, did you convince people to vote for gay rights? <laughs> Part of me wants to think that we played a small contribution towards mm-hmm. that historic win, but most of the people we talked to have pretty much made up their mind, and they were they they were all yes voters by the time yep. we got to them. There was there was one guy who answered the phone. I think he might have had a little bit too much to drink and no. he didn't have some nice things to say to us, but that was like one one encounter. But that's the, the beautiful that I was there. You know, Jay, the beautiful thing about travel is you meet people and people meet you and it's not the people that you've always gone to school with or gone to church with or whatever, but it's people you wouldn't normally cross paths with. And then you realize, oh, they're not they're not scary, they're not threatening. You know, there were definitely people who felt harmed by that progress, and I, I think maybe there was one county and the entire nation that did, did vote for the status quo and to keep the anti-marriage constitution on the books, but it was something like 67%. It was, mm-hmm. it was pretty overwhelming, even in most of the counties that, mm-hmm. you know, outside of Cork and Dublin. It was, it was a really a slam-dunk result. Well, the Catholic Church needs to wake up and smell the roses, I think, in that regard. Um, Now, who am I to say? It's up to them. But um, I'm thankful that my church realized that, and we had a a big split in the Lutheran Church, lost a lot of people, but now we're totally gay-friendly, and I'm thankful for that. I am too, Rick. (laughs) So you got to go back and do the uh, touristic stuff. What's on your list when you go back to Ireland? I would definitely like to take the train up to Belfast and check out the United Kingdom portion of the the island and... uh, absorb some of that history, which, you know, we all know hasn't been easy for Ireland, yeah. but I'm an Irish Catholic, and so I have that one Irish granny who, who taught me to really be proud and mindful of my Irish heritage, and good. there's so much complexity. My dad gave me some good advice before I went to Dublin for the marriage equality race, and he said, son, don't, don't go to Belfast this time. Save all of that sectarian history, which is so interesting, and it's such a part of so many Americans' uh, lineage, just save it for another trip. Keep your eye Mm -hmm. on the prize. Keep your eye on the marriage equality thing. Go over there. Get your win. Focus on that. And then the next time you go back to Ireland, you can be a proper tourist. And that includes a lot of history, which is current and painful and, like you said, unresolved. And you need to hear both narratives. That's the beautiful thing about going to Belfast, is you get to talk to Protestants and, and, and gain an understanding of their outlook and their baggage, and then you talk to the Catholics up there and you get a, a, a sense of their outlook and their baggage. And it's a complicated thing. And uh, push comes to shove, they're good people that just need to spend a little more time drinking beer together. Rick, when I do that, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to call you and tell you all about my trip to Northern Ireland. I want to hear from it. Okay, Jay, thanks so much, and uh, congratulations on your political activism in a foreign country. I hope that's legal. <laughs> you betcha. <laughs> Me okay, too. take care. Bye. Take care. Bye. There's a special kind of excitement that comes with planning new adventures. While we're waiting for the time when we can travel safely again, let's enjoy remembering some of our favorite travel experiences and what they meant to us. We're at 877-333-RICK at Travel with Rick Steves. 
Michael in Denver joins us on the line. Hey, Michael. Hi, Rick. Um, we've been following your advice since the late 1990s. In fact, we kind of go to extremes with your uh, backdoor philosophy. We think it's the people we meet rather than the sites we see that are the uh, that create the most lasting memories. And that's what brought us to rent an apartment in Mouton, Switzerland. And when we arrived, we were delighted to learn that this apartment was under a nine-student, one-room school. Hmm. Uh, the ages were about five to 12. And it's one of our most lasting memories. They had a very small playground with some swings. We pushed the kids on the, the younger kids on the swings. They had a, a, a very small soccer court with a very high fence for the, some of the older kids to practice soccer. Uh, and it had to have a high fence because Mouton is on this very steep hillside. It's a tiny village. Obviously, if they kicked the ball, it would go way oh, down yeah. the hill. Hey, Michael, <laughs> where, where is Mouton? And, and describe it a little bit more for us. Well, it's a tiny village that we searched out uh, in our research, and it's in eastern uh, Switzerland, and it's sort of south. I think the main town is Chur or Chol. Chur, yes, yeah, C-H-U-R. C-H-U-R, yeah. and it's south of that. Okay. Uh, and the photos we have of this are, are one of our lasting memories. Well, it, it was also bittersweet because our hosts, uh, Doris and Heinz, uh, we stayed in contact with them, over the years uh, with email and Facebook and so forth. And tragically, Doris developed terminal cancer and Mm. and passed away. Mm. Uh, But before she did, her husband, Heinz, had carved us a wooden, small wooden cow with a typical Swiss bell and a Mm. red ribbon around Mm. the neck. And so that sits on our dining room table so that we have this uh, wonderful, you know, sort of bittersweet memory of, Mouton, Switzerland. You know, you guys did it really well because, first of all, you found yourself in a tiny village that has a one-room schoolhouse with nine students. That right there is impressive. Secondly, you slept right under it and you got to know the students. And then thirdly, you got to know your hosts so well that you became friends after that and, and you've got yes. these memories to this day. That is such yes, a good we, example of, of we've good We've done travel. that several times. In fact, uh, later on, on a different trip to Switzerland, we we were over a two room school <laughs> outside of uh, outside of Wald, mm-hmm. Switzerland, which is sort of southeast of uh, Zurich. And our philosophy of, of searching out these places that are pretty well or unknown, we've stayed in uh, Ferndon, Switzerland, in the Lochental Valley. Mm-hmm. We found Mockmule, Germany. Mm-hmm which we think uh, is a medieval walled city that rivals Rothenburg in some place, except yeah. it doesn't have the tourists. The shops are, are local village shops rather than tourist shops. That makes a big difference. I've, I've looked at Lochental on the map and been so intrigued by it, but I've never been there. And you've done a good job oh, of going to, to these go. places. Yeah, Lochental. Uh, Michael, you could write a guidebook, I think, a complete guidebook to the country and not even step on my toes a bit because all of your little towns would towns I've not even been to, so that's pretty cool. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'd be happy to. You're on to something Bye there. Me up. <laughs> You're an inspiration. Thanks for your call, Michael. Thank you. Bye now. This is Travel with Rick Steves. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. And we got Clara calling in. Hey, Clara from Cincinnati. Thanks for your call. Thank you for having me. Yeah. What are you thinking about lately with your travels? Have you had any fun memories that you've been pondering? 
The very first time I used one of your books on a vacation in Europe was in 1997. I was a student in London doing a semester abroad and met my parents in Barcelona. And we took a train into southwest France and went to Coulure, Carcassonne, Albi, Benac, Sarla, and all the way up uh, to the Bordeaux region and finally to Paris. Mm. And it was just a wonderful vacation. And one of my greatest memories, actually, of my father, period, is when we took a boat down the Dordogne River from Benac. And we were just rowing away and enjoying our time, singing La Marseillaise, singing Rule Britannia, singing, just singing all the way. And we were singing so much that we realized that we had gone a mile off course and we only had about a half an hour to get back to the boat dock to get the van back to our hotel mm. in Baynock. Mm. So that was probably the best exercise. You overshot the pickup by a, a mile and you had to row back upstream? Yeah. Oh, that'd be hard work. This is one of those uh, rental things where you take off on a canoe and then you they agree to meet you somewhere and then they drive you back, right? Yeah. From Baynac in, yeah. in the Dordogne. I love that ride. It's one of the most idyllic, dreamy afternoons I've had in my whole life of traveling in Europe was floating down the Dordogne River from Baynac to just where you missed your boat drop pickup spot. You're surrounded by castles and charming little towns and and you're looking forward to a wonderful dinner that evening and I could imagine you get carried away with your singing and, and overshoot your uh, destination. Well, and then the next day, um, we were in Sarlat and we quite literally bumped into an extra for the movie Ever After with Drew Barrymore. Whoa. And got to talking with him and the next day, uh, his nickname was Big Al, and then the next day, Big Al invited us onto the set. So we spent the day on the set in the Dordogne region at this beautiful chateau and actually got to see a scene with Drew Barrymore and the whole bit. So it was a memorable trip for, for many, many reasons, not just having the black wine and Kaor and the at the bridge and the, oh. <laughs> and the foie gras, but also an experience that Probably not a lot of people get to have mm. on their trip to the Dordogne region. The black wine in Cahors, it's so good, and the foie gras, and uh, the amazing market scenes, the castles overlooking the Dordogne River Valley, the canoe rides, and uh, meeting movie stars. <laughs> you, you had a little extra serendipity yes. there. It was, it was a lovely trip, yes. Oh, that's great. Well, those are good memories. I hope you can have more, Clara. I hope so, too. I, okay. I, I look forward to it. I'm, I was supposed to go uh, to Barcelona this year. Yeah. Uh, Barcelona is where I got engaged, so it's very oh. near and dear to my heart. But hopefully uh, it's just a short delay and we'll be back on the road to yeah. Europe again. Yeah, I hope so. And uh, in time, they'll have some travelers filling their streets and filling their shops and their restaurants again. And I hope one of them is you. Thanks, Clara, for your call. Thank you for having me. The year of the kind. Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Tatton and Casmara Hall at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington. We get website support from Amara Kipnikone, promotion support from Sheila Gerzoff. Our theme music is by Jerry Frank. Look for our show notes. They're updated each week at ricksteves.com slash radio. Let's do it again next week as we travel with Rick Steves. Hey, I'm Rick Steves. I love art. And in my new book, Europe's Top 100 Masterpieces, I share my favorites with gorgeous photos and vivid descriptions. 
It's a greatest hit sweep through art history via the finest paintings, sculpture, and architecture ever. It's all in Europe's top 100 masterpieces. Art for the traveler. It's available now at ricksteves.com.